Life Audio. Faith Over Fear is brought to you by Life Audio and is part of our Faith Toolkit series. For more inspirational, faith-affirming podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hello, welcome to the Faith Over Fear podcast, where we discuss powerful truths to counter anxiety and fear, big and small. At Holy Love Ministries, we are passionate about helping God's children discover, embrace, and experience soul-deep emotional and spiritual freedom, and we want to inspire you to share that freedom with others. We would love to connect with you online. Just visit our show notes to learn about one of our upcoming events, how to book one of our speakers for your next event, or simply how to connect with us. Before we begin today's discussion, I wanted to share about a fun giveaway I am hosting in December. I will be selecting one person randomly from my newsletter subscriber list to receive a book bundle. In that bundle includes Stand in Confidence by Amanda Pittman, Remaining You While Raising Them, The Secret Art of Confident Motherhood by Allie Worthington, Rooted, A Girlfriend Gathering Study of Philippians by Becky Harling, Better Than Okay, Finding Hope and Healing After Your Marriage Ends by Brandy Wilson, and A Faith That Will Not Fail by Michelle Couchette. So if you are not a subscriber, you still have time to subscribe to my newsletter and get in on the drawing. You can do so by visiting my website, Jennifer Slattery Lives Out Loud. Hello, I'm Adam Comer. And I'm Ryan Chittister. And we are the host of Life After Addiction Podcast. What we believe is that addiction is not a surprise to God. That's right. We discuss addiction from a biblical worldview and how true freedom comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Absolute freedom from addiction. The secular worldview of once an addict, always an addict is just not true. If you or someone you love struggles with addiction, subscribe to Life After Addiction at lifeaudio.com. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. I'm Jennifer Slattery, and I often find it confusing to know how to love others the way that God desires, while also maintaining and setting healthy boundaries. And sadly, my confusion, coupled with untended wounds from my past, resulted in years of codependent behaviors, and that led to increased dysfunction in my relationships. And I know I'm not alone. One article I read suggested that as many as 90% of adults in the United States demonstrate codependent behaviors. And I don't know how accurate that is, but I do know this is an important conversation for us to have. And that's why I felt it was so important to invite author and therapist Dr. Allison Cook to the Faith Over Fear podcast. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Dr. Allison Cook is a therapist, a multi-published author, and podcast host who empowers others to heal from past wounds, develop a strong sense of self, 
forge healthy relationships with others and experience a loving God who is for them. Her podcast and email reach more than 60,000 people each week. She specializes in bringing faith and psychology together to create real change in people's lives. Her first book, Boundaries for Your Soul, which actually I'm currently reading, (laughs) provides a step-by-step approach to managing emotions in partnership with God. Her newest book, The Best of You, which we'll be discussing today, teaches readers how to develop a strong sense of self, set wise limits, and forge healthy relationships with others. She and her husband, Joe, are the parents of two adult children. They're based out of Boston, and they spend time in the mountains of Wyoming as often as they can. That sounds really lovely. I just got back from a backpack in the wilderness in Wyoming. It was wonderful. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. That sounds yeah. awesome. That's, yeah. So I really, I really enjoyed your, I'm enjoying both of your books, but I really enjoyed The Best of You. And in it, you open with a story from college where you felt like you had lost your sense of self. I would love it if you could tell us a little bit more about that time. Yeah. I mean, I had a really strong experience of Jesus in college. I'd grown up in a Christian home, but it was really a college, a secular school in New England. It wasn't, you know, for me, that was perfect because it just made God really real. And so I really had this deep love for God, this deep love for Jesus, but I didn't get the emotional healing that I needed at that time. And so almost there's a way in which I put all of that even more deeply aside because I thought, well, now I'll just live for God. Now, again, that's not all bad, you know, but I went into my 20s and my 30s with this really vigorous faith with a, a fair amount of really unhealed wounds and unhealed pain, which led to in my early 30s, a little bit of a crisis, right? I knew God really well. I loved God. It wasn't a crisis of faith, but it was a crisis of identity. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how to care for myself. I didn't even think that was good. Um, I thought, you know, I'd sort of internalize these messages that self was bad. You know, we shouldn't think about ourselves. We shouldn't care. We should die to ourselves, right? And so I really had to do some deep work to uncover this both and of our faith that we love God. And we also learn to reciprocally through our love of God to honor this person he made us to be. I love that you mentioned you were, you had a strong faith, but you still struggled. I think that's really oh, yeah. good for our listeners to hear. You can struggle with anxiety and depression and, and past wounds and be really close to God. So I love that you said that. In, yeah. in your experience, can establishing healthy boundaries feel especially challenging and confusing for Christ followers? Yeah, I think so, because I think so many of us, again, internalize these messages. We want to be loving. We want to be kind. We want to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, right? And those are all wonderful things. The problem is we live in a world where there's a lot of toxicity, where people will take advantage of you. People will exploit you. And that if we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus was not a doormat. Jesus did not let people take, you know, Jesus called people out. Jesus was pretty robust in the different ways he responded to people. And so when we internalize this message of, well, it's really just my job to turn the other cheek and just grin and bear and let people walk all over me, that is not the picture that we see in the Bible, but that's often what we internalize. And so I look at kind of flipping it and going, you know, what does it look like to show some of those fruit of the spirit also toward ourselves? We show them toward others, but we also have to show them toward ourselves. And also really looking at the life of Jesus as a model of someone who shows up in the world with wisdom, someone who shows up in the world wisely, someone who has skills and is equipped to deal with all the landmines that are going 
to come our way inevitably as we engage the very real world that we live in. I'm actually glad you mentioned that verse about turning the other cheek, because one, yeah. I think it's really encouraging. And then two, I loved you quoted one of my favorite scholars in your book in relation to that verse. Yeah. Remember what I'm referencing? And she right. Yeah. Would you yeah. mind sharing for our listeners who uh, maybe find that very yeah. confusing? Yeah, it's one of the my favorite. Uh, I did a podcast episode on that. Uh, it's not about a reframing, his contextualizing what Jesus meant when he said to turn the other cheek in the historical context. It's one of the favorite topics that people hear because so many people have been encouraged with that verse, turn the other cheek to take abuse, right? To to just take abusive behavior. That's not what Jesus meant. So in the historical context, what he's saying is in the face of these Roman soldiers who are going to, you know, smack you on the cheek, it's essentially a shaming act. They're essentially smacking you on the one side of your cheek which is a way of saying, you don't matter. I'm above you. You're lower than me. So when you turn the other cheek, you're essentially, it's an act of defiance. It's an act of nonviolent resistance. You're saying, you know what? Hit me again if you like, but this time hit me as an equal, right? There's a little bit of a cheekiness to it. Um, and in that time, that was understood. And it's the similar tactic that Martin Luther King Jr. would use in his nonviolent resistance to he he would it was kind of like listen we're going to stand here we're not going to fight we're not going to meet evil with evil but we are going to stand here in our dignity and guess what happens you when you come after me it reveals the shame on you i'm not going to take that shame on uh, in dignity i am going to stand here on my power with god on my side i'm not going to fight back with evil or violence but i'm going to stand here and you you kind of get that gist of oh there's a real strength in turning the other cheek. Now, again, if we're talking about situations of abuse, if you're literally being abused, I'm not encouraging you to stand there and, and get help. Call somebody, call the police, right? But the idea is when you're dealing with toxicity, maybe somebody's verbally coming after you, there's a defiance in that of, I do, I do not have to take this treatment. I'm not going to yell back at you because that just puts more violence in action. But I also have, I'm going to honor my God-given dignity in this moment. I love that. We'll put a link in the show notes to that podcast episode. I yeah. think people would really yeah. find that yeah. helpful. And I also love that you encouraged if people are in an abusive situation that God doesn't intend for us no. to sit there and endure it or try to change them by necessarily, you know, being loving exactly. enough for, you know, we think that our love will change the person when instead they're taking advantage of us. And it's a real reframe that has to occur, especially for women. But but really for any of us that get yourself to safety. You are worth more. You deserve more. You have dignity before God. Get yourself to safety. And then, you know, you don't have to, again, fight evil with evil, but you do have to get yourself to a safer place. What is the difference between, first of all, I, some people may not even know we've been talking about codependency and, you know, my opening, and that's a big part of what your book addresses. For those who don't understand what that is, can you maybe help them understand? And then what's the difference between codependency and like healthy interdependence? Yeah. And I, I love the statistic you quoted, and I think it's really true. I think it's really rampant in our culture, but codependency is essentially you bypass your own work. You bypass your own emotional needs, the care of your own self to essentially hide yourself in taking care of somebody else or even, and it, it leads to enabling somebody else. So the classic historical, the where the word came from is an addiction recovery. So one, if you have a 
friendship or a partnership where one person is an addict, so they're demonstrating the overt addictive behaviors, the other person is enabling them. Because, and that other person, the co-dependent, isn't maybe dependent on a substance, but they're dependent on the hit that they're getting from helping and propping up this other person, right? So the codependent is getting something from their helping or kind of tends to lead to enabling someone else. Now, I see it all the time where we throw ourselves into other people's problems, whether it's our kids, our spouses, our friends, instead of doing our own work. And we sort of get something from that. We feel like a good person, right? Oh, I feel really bad about myself today. Instead of working through my own stuff, I'll just throw myself into somebody else's problem. And it kind of becomes a drug in a sense. We become dependent on that way of making ourselves feel better. And over time, it's really unhealthy because inevitably we're doing someone else's work for them when A, they need to be doing their work and we need to be doing our work. So that's the unhealthy way. The healthy way of interdependence, the way God intended is I do my work, you do your work. And when I need help, I say, hey, I'm struggling over here. Can you come alongside me and walk with me for a leg? It's still my responsibility, but hey, can you walk with me? And then guess what? You do the same. You go, yeah, I'm over here. I'm kind of doing some work. I'm in the weeds. I'm struggling with this thing. Hey, could you come on in and help me out, right? So two people are each doing their own emotional work to stay healthy, to stay whole. And they're... Often we believe our questions mean we don't have faith. But I believe Jesus loves our questions. Our questions are windows into heaven. I'm Caden Fabrizio, and on the Questions with Caden podcast, we ask and answer one question per episode as relevantly and biblically as possible. Questions about fear, anxiety, depression, addiction, and so much more. Don't worry. Your questions, they're not going to scare Jesus. So ask away. Listen and subscribe now at lifeaudio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. They're helping each other as we each walk forward in our lives. As you were talking about how codependency might show up, how much does fear play a part in that? Oh, I think it's huge because I think I'm afraid, right? I'm afraid of, and we learned this. A lot of times we learned this in childhood, right? So there's no shame in it. That was my story. You learn, we learn like, oh man, you know, if I'm in this family where I'm not really seen and I'm not really being nurtured, it's like take care of other people. I think you're going to hit a feeling good and a feeling valued. And so then we go into adulthood and it's really scary because it's like, wow, if I stop taking care of everybody else, I got to, who, who am I? What's my worth? What's my purpose? How do I matter? How do I even begin to do the work of kind of honoring my own emotional needs or my own, the needs of my body? So it can be really scary for people to begin to kind of wean other people off of their helping behaviors because you, f- you take a lot of identity from that. So we take a lot of a, a feeling of, like, I feel good about myself when I do that work. So who am I apart from that? How does it affect too, like maybe fear of rejection? A hundred percent. It's And then those people will leave me because the only reason they're really with is because I help them, is because I give them affirmation, is because I'm always that safe person. It kind of gets at the doormat thing. Again, as you know, because I just always set myself aside to show up for them. So if I stop doing that, they're going to get mad. They're going to walk away. They're going to leave me. That's really scary. We have to remind ourselves, wait, do I want to be in a relationship with somebody who is only in it for what I do for them? 
that's not really a healthy relationship. And so you can kind of start taking these baby steps to test, hey, if I show up with a little more of my own needs, or if I do a little less for them, what happens? Can they adjust? Can they pivot? Can they meet me halfway? And if they can't, is that really a healthy relationship? And do I really need to be in that relationship? That actually leads to one of the questions you pose in your book, you encourage readers to consider in your book, which is to define what they want. And why is that so important? So many of us have this conditioning, whether from childhood or even from some misconstrued church messages of what I want, what I need shouldn't matter. That's selfish to consider what I want or what I need. When in fact, from a psychological perspective, one of our earliest milestones that we have to resolve as children and when we're parenting. And if you are parenting your own kids, right, you're teaching your child, use your words, ask for what you need. If you're in a situation that's uncomfortable, speak up, right? We want our children to learn to use their voices to say, no, we don't want our children to be selfish. We want them to share with other children. And two things are true, right? We want them to both share with other children and be good to others and know how to say, I didn't like that. I didn't like being treated that way. That didn't feel good to me. I need food. I'm hungry, right? So if we didn't learn that, we have to retrain, prepare ourselves to say, you know what? I'm tired right now. I don't have more to give. I'm going to have to say no to that request for my time right now. And that's really hard because that person might be mad at me. But I have got to honor the needs and desires also of my body and of my mind when it comes to our wants. You know, it's okay Again, if you think about a relationship to negotiate preferences, to say, what do you want? Here's what I want. Okay, the beauty of a relationship is it always deferring to someone else. The beauty of a relationship is going, okay, great. Let's now figure out how to compromise or how to negotiate. Maybe this time we do what I want. This time we do what you want. A healthy relationship is two humans coming together, each able to say, this is what I'd prefer. This is what I need. And then together, negotiating your way through those things. It's not being a doormat. It's not just denying our needs all the time and our wants. I thought you actually did a great job in your book of breaking that down. And people recognize the messages maybe that they have received that have colored their perspective. So what would you say to those that they're listening like, okay, this, this all sounds great, but what if I then become selfish? What would you say to them? Yeah, I always say, and I say this in the book, there's a difference between selfishness and what I call selfhood. And and furthermore, selflessness is not always the right choice, right? There's selfishness on one side, selflessness. So selfishness is I always, my way or the highway, what I want, you know, we're going to do. Selflessness is it, ne- I, I never, we never do it my way. It's always about other people. That is not healthy. And that's not what we see in the life of Jesus. Right. Jesus had a really healthy balance of being pouring out for others and taking in what he needed. He moved away from people at times. So neither of those extremes is healthy. So I call the middle ground is selfhood, which is I know what I need and I honor your needs. I know what I want. Sometimes I set aside what I want, but I know what I want. And I also want to honor what you want. And so when we become our whole selves, our true selves in Christ, that's that selfhood, that healthy sense of self, where we're not a doormat, where we have a sense of what we need and what we want. And we're actually far more capable then of really honoring the needs and wants of others because we're not enabling. We're not being codependent. We're actually saying, oh, interesting. Here's what I need in this moment. 
here's what I really want. I'm also a parent. And so I have to think about what my kids need or what my kids want or what my spouse needs or what my friends need. But my needs are in the mix. And I'm going to be a much better parent, spouse, friend when I'm honoring my own needs and wants as well. I really liked in discussion of that, your emphasis on reciprocation. Yeah. I, I found that really helpful and really clear as a way to kind of, oh, well, that makes that makes sense. You wrote in your book that clinicians are increasingly looking at anxiety, depression, and emotional problems. This was interesting to me, not as illnesses to be to diagnose, but as cues to start asking key questions. So what are some questions that maybe if, if we're experiencing anxiety, depression, maybe some questions we can ask ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. The the key reframe there instead of what's wrong with you or what's wrong with me is what happened to you. And that's a trauma informed question, right? So this is the movement in our field away from we still understand things as anxiety and depression, sometimes as organic, sometimes they're genetic. A lot of times they're rooted in trauma. They're rooted in unhealed pain from the past, right? So this is this movement in the last decade to 10 to 20 years in the field where we start to ask, wow, there's a lot of anxiety there. What happened? Let's let's go to the root of that. What messages maybe did you pick up? What are you telling yourself? So often with anxiety, there's a harsh inner critic. We're beating ourselves up. Parts of us actually need care. We don't know how to care for ourselves. So we come in and we beat ourselves up. This creates a ton of inner commotion inside of us. And so we begin to kind of look at anxiety, at depression more as an opportunity for healing. Doesn't mean that we might not need ongoing care. Doesn't mean people might not need medication, but there's also an opportunity there to go, how can I, is there an opportunity to heal? Is there an opportunity to kind of go back and look at some of the messages I've told myself and reframe them in a more whole, healthy, healed, truthful way. I love that. How does that, so kind of talking about some of the things we experience, thinking in terms of our tendencies potentially to become codependent, how can that be conditioned? Like our responses to conflict, to stress, how can that, how can our past condition us towards unhealthy responses today? Yeah. And I get into the, the sort of what I call the cocktail of codependency, the three childhood wounds. If you were raised in a faith community, sometimes these misconstrued church messages land and then even just our cultural conditioning, things we feel like we should, should be a certain way. And so I think it's most clearly understood if you think about someone who as a child has needs and for whatever reason, even the best of families, right? This doesn't have to be big T traumas, doesn't have to be what we think of as like physical abuse or even raging verbal abuse, but even just small T traumas where a parent maybe met your needs for food, for shelter, provided safety, provided a loving environment, but maybe they were kind of absent emotionally and weren't really aware of some of the things that were going on at school. Maybe you were getting bullied. Maybe you felt really left out and, you know, just nobody was really around to help you process that, right? As a child, you make meaning. You, you're creating meaning of that. The classic example is when you're a child, if if your parents divorce and no one really comes alongside of you through that, kids tell themselves, it's my fault. I caused this. If you're being bullied and no one really comes, you, there's something wrong with me. I'm the problem. And so you, you subconsciously create these narratives about yourself and about painful things around you that aren't true. And we take those into adulthood. And so here we are in adulthood and somebody's mistreating me and it's like, well, it's my fault. This is just 
my destiny. This is what happens to me. As opposed to, wait a minute, someone's mistreating me. This person isn't a good person. I need to get myself out of this relationship, right? And so if you've got those childhood wounds, no one helped you. And then you hear you're in church and people are like, you got to love other people. You got to be kind. You're like, okay, I'll just double down, <laughs> you know? And and it happens to all of us where we we have these messages, these narratives in our mind that we have to really start to look at and say, wait a minute, is that true? Is that really what God is saying? Maybe what God is saying gosh, this cue that I, I'm anxious in this relationship might be that I'm being mistreated. And then I've got this long message that goes all the way back to, I've just got to work harder. Maybe I need to change that messaging and heal and work on finding healthier relationships. As you're talking about to being loving, I often think about we're not really being loving if we're if we're allowing negative behavior for the other person, right? I mean, that, that seems like a, actually a harmful response potentially for the other right. person. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good for anybody. It's not good for us. And it's actually not healthy for other people to let them mistreat us. Well, how can, so you talked about church influences and I think a lot of us, we feel we have our, our feelings can be highly driven towards empathy, right? Well, especially yes. if we really care about someone else. And I yeah. think that's a godly trait. I, I believe that's a godly trait, but how can that also be something we have to be maybe to be alert to? Yeah. I talk in the book about the empathy trap, which is another one of those barriers to healthy boundaries. When you're high in empathy, we feel the pain of the other person, even when the other person is mistreating us at times, right? We're like, well, I know why they're mistreating me because they have a really hard struggle in this area and they're taking it out on me and I understand it. I don't want to hurt them, you know, and that empathy can get us in trouble. We can start to rationalize somebody else's poor behavior. And so what we have to be aware of with empathy is it is a wonderful God-given quality. It's beautiful. And we have to steward it. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, I feel for this person. That doesn't mean I have to put myself in harm's way. I can feel for this person and it doesn't mean I have to harm myself to help them, right? So two things can be true. We can feel for the other person and walk away from the other person because I ha- I cannot put myself in harm's way. And I have to remind the empathetic part of me that might actually be the kindest thing to do for them. Because if I walk away, maybe they'll get the help they need. Maybe they won't, but I'm at least not enabling them. So empathy is this, it's, I, sometimes I look at it, it's like this little child. It's beautiful. You know, Jesus said, let the let the purity of the children shine. It's also something we have to protect. We have to care for and safeguard so we don't get ourselves in trouble. That's really good. You you talk in your book, talk a lot about unhealthy relationships, but then you guide readers into forming healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to the listener who's kind of in that place that they, they recognize, okay, most of my relationships aren't reciprocal. I'm the one to give, 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 give. How do they begin to, to shift? First of all, is there a way to to shift maybe some of their current relationships. Maybe they've just gotten in bad patterns. And then how can they begin to, as they're growing and learning themselves, to shift towards increasingly healthy relationships? Yeah, yeah. So I go through the six flags, the the red flags of unhealthy friendship, but then I also go through the signs of healthy relationships. And I love how you're asking the question, because it doesn't mean we just have to ditch all of our relationships. And I talk about testing. There's a lot in Proverbs, right, about wisdom, about being wise. And and so I really, I'm pretty practical about this, about just introducing even really small, little, you're not testing the other person. 
that's not the goal. You're almost testing your ability to trust yourself. And so it's almost like you're saying to yourself in this relationship, for example, where I don't feel like it's reciprocal, where I feel like we're always doing what my friend wants to do. We're always talking about their problems. You might just introduce a tiny shift, which is in a moment, say, hey, I'd love to share with you something I'm interested in, or I'd love to share with you a problem I'm having. And you do it consciously and you notice, how do they respond? Are they like, oh, Oh, great. You know, and then that's awesome. You've just introduced a more reciprocal relationship. If they just walk all over you and don't care and are like, no, that's stupid. Well, gosh, you got some good data because that's not a great friend. And then you might need to scale back how much time you spend with that person. So you're discerning. It's right. It's a process of discernment. It's putting something new out. It, It could be as little as, you know, saying, I'd love to actually eat cure instead of where you always want to eat, you know, and just notice how did they respond to that? You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it to build trust with yourself. It's okay for me to use my voice. It's okay for me to state a preference or a need. You're also doing it to discern, is this someone who will meet me halfway? And that data helps you figure out your next step. That's awesome. I'd like to end our conversation. I'm thinking of those who maybe have relationships that they can't just walk away from. Right. Like yeah. maybe or or maybe they're not sure that they can can walk away or should. So like maybe a parent or or maybe an adult child or even more challenging, a spouse. So what would you say to them that they've let's talk to those who are married and they're saying, you know, my marriage does not feel reciprocal. What are what would be the first step for them after what you said the you know, the testing the waters, what what would you say to them? Yeah. So I talk in the book on the on when we when we're thinking about boundaries, there's a spectrum of toxicity. Right. And in this spectrum, the first thing I want to do is say, like we said before, if you're on that far left, you know, the the right side of the spectrum is just the healthiest of health where no one really lives, you know, you know, no one is all co- completely healthy. You want to be on the healthy side of the spectrum. What we're kind of talking about is when you're on that that side of the spectrum where we're seeing some toxic behaviors, even somebody who's self-centered, somebody who's even bordering on narcissistic, right? We're all the way. If you're all the way on that, you know, it's just toxic. Then we have to talk about you got to get support, especially if there's abuse involved. You got to get some help. It's really hard to do it on your own. But I think some of the hardest relationships are one that I call kind of that chronic where it's not completely toxic, but boy, there's just not a lot of reciprocity. No one's really it's hard and it's really painful. What I would say is the first thing you need to do is beef up your support outside of the relationship. You're a whole person. You know, God wants you to heal. And as beefing up that support so that you can become as true and as whole as you can, where you understand what it's like to receive good gifts, where you understand what it's like to receive care, you're reducing your expectation of your partner because you're realizing, man, it hurts too much to put out a bid for care and to just systematically never have it met. So you maybe reduce your expectations. You beef up your support over here. And then when you kind of begin to feel a little bit healthier yourself, you know, then maybe you introduce that, hey, could we go to a counselor? You know, I'm wanting more. Could we bring in somebody else to learn? You know, you, you maybe take it to the next level with that person. And there's, cause there's a lot of, again, when, when you're on that extreme side of toxicity, even counseling is probably not, you know, typically uh, research shows it doesn't help with someone who's just completely toxic because they'll just use counseling to that may be getting too deep for them. <laughs> for, but you know, it, it is true that if someone's really toxic, they can actually misuse counseling against you. But when we're talking about just this sort of, it's just not bad enough to leave, but boy, 
not getting a lot of good stuff. You really got to beef up your own support to stay strong, to then try to bring more supports into the marriage so that the marriage can take some steps toward health and you're not just doing it alone. Which is basically the premise of your book, right? The best, yeah. the best of you. And so I really appreciate all that you've shared in our conversation, helping us to find out how to show up with our best selves. Yeah. And, and to our listeners, so the best of you, it, her book, it reveals a breakthrough strategy to find your voice, set wise limits and still be a loving person. So for yeah. over 20 years, Dr. Allison has integrated faith and psychology to help women reclaim their confidence, find their purpose and enjoy healthy relationships. Her unique wisdom will help you answer these questions. Why do I feel stuck in the pain of my past? Can I learn to trust myself? How do I find my voice? When do I need to set a boundary? What if other people respond with anger, blame, or a guilt trip? And so much more. Such great resource. Thank you so much. And you're exactly right. The more we become the best of who we are, there's just there's just no way to lose. You're going to bring that into your relationships. Um, so I so appreciate just the conversation with you this today about all this. Absolutely. And like I said, I'm loving I'm loving both your books. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening. If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. Then you won't miss a single episode. Share it with your friends. Until next time, may you live as one who truly has been set free. Faith Over Fear is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Everyone wants to change the world. Capital Ministries is doing just that, one heart at a time by creating disciples of Jesus Christ among political leaders in the U.S. and foreign nations. For more than 25 years, founder Ralph Drawlinger has written Bible studies specifically for public servants. Study along with us and learn what the Bible says about capitalism, communism, abortion, same-sex marriage, and other contemporary issues. Subscribe and follow us at lifeaudio.com or search Capital Ministries on your favorite podcast platform.